I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending May 14th. For a very long time, technologists have been developing machines that can sense. We've had motion detectors for ages. We now have pressure sensors so sensitive we can build robots that can handle eggs without breaking them. In the audio realm, we've got sensors that can distinguish speech from other sounds. We've been building machines that can see. Optical detection is a common capability. True vision, however, is harder. There is so much more to learn before machine vision is anywhere near as capable as human eyesight. But we're making progress toward that goal all the time. Think about how amazing it is that many of us have phones that can recognize our faces. This week, we're going to be discussing progress in the field of machine vision. We'll get to our conversation about machine vision in a moment. First, here's a quick rundown of some of the most interesting articles we have in EE Times this week. Several years ago, the companies that designed the most advanced logic devices were obliged to adopt new device structures that went truly vertical for the first time in decades. It was a pretty wrenching process. Companies that design advanced memory devices avoided 3D architectures for as long as they could, but it looks like they won't be able to hold out any longer. Gary Hilson's article called DRAM Destined to be 3D is a detailed examination of how memory architectures are about to change pretty dramatically. Another week, another ransomware attack. This one taking down a major U.S. oil pipeline serving the East Coast. Anne Thrift covers the cybersecurity beat. In her latest article, she puts this most recent attack in perspective. And the perspective is this. Since individual organizations consistently opt for inadequate security, maybe it's time to stop letting lack security be an option. Artificial intelligence companies are still generating a lot of buzz. Sally Ward Foxton recently spoke with the CEO of Vast AI Technologies. The Chinese AI startup is still in stealth mode, but we learned a few things nonetheless. We've also got articles on the latest scuttlebutt on IC manufacturing capacity expansion around the globe, on using quantum computing to perfect storage battery technology, on a New Zealand startup that might have finally achieved Nikola Tesla's dream of transmitting wireless power, and more. Visit our website at eetimes.com for the latest in industry news and analysis. If you reach this episode through our podcast webpage, there are links to all of these stories on your left. For most of human history, we have surrounded ourselves with machines. It started with the wheel, the axle, the lever, the inclined plane, the pulley, and the screw. By the way, I learned the list of simple machines in grade school and haven't thought about them once since. Full disclosure, I could only list three of six off the top of my head. I had to go Google the rest. Anyway, flash forward a few millennia, and we've still got machines everywhere, although they've become progressively more sophisticated. We've got printing presses, toasters, automobiles, laptops, pet feeders, weed whackers, ramen dispensers, 8-track tape players. By the way, are any of you listeners out there 
a fan of They Might Be Giants, the band just issued a brand new collection of songs on 8-track tape. Seriously, 2021 and you can add to your 8-track tape collection. The world is a wonderful place. But where was I going with this? Ah, yeah. Oh, I was making a point about how humanity has been making machines for millennia, and throughout almost all of that history, all of our machines have sat idle until we activated them. Only in the tiniest, most recent sliver of human history has that changed. We began to create machines that can detect and respond. Only in a more recent and even tinier sliver of time have we also made machines that cannot just detect and respond, but also identify and react. What's the difference? Well, the difference is the difference between an automatic door with a motion sensor that opens when it detects an object moving toward it on the one hand, and on the other hand, a system that doesn't just receive a stimulus, but can tell you what that stimulus is. A recent example is Google's Alexa, which can now distinguish specific sounds. It will ignore traffic or a dog barking, but it will alert you if it hears glass breaking. As far as identification and reaction go, these are pretty simple applications, but they point to where technology is heading. Now, humans rely on vision more than most of our other senses, and so it only makes sense that we're working especially hard on creating optical systems that can not only detect, but can actually see. Technologists have already begun combining machine vision with artificial intelligence. Many of us now have phones that can recognize our own faces. That's still a rudimentary capability compared to all that humans could do with eyesight, but it's a big step toward getting there, which is what makes this a truly exciting time to be working in embedded vision. Jeff Beer ranks among the world's foremost mavens of embedded vision technology. He is president of BDTI, a company that consults on technology, notably embedded vision systems and machine learning. He's the founder of the Edge AI and Vision Alliance, a group with over 100 member companies. And he's an organizer of the annual Embedded Vision Summit. The next Embedded Vision Summit just happens to run at the end of this month. Conducting the interview of Jeff Beer with me is global editor Junko Yoshida. To compress about 60 years of, of history and technology evolution into just a few minutes, I would describe it this way. Um, computer vision started in, by most accounts, in the 1960s with the idea that well, we have computers, we have algorithms. These algorithms can take data and extract uh, useful insights, patterns from data. So why don't we take an image as data and write a program that can um, extract useful information, maybe, for example, to determine is there a human face present in this image? That's a very common thing you'd like to do in many applications. And so people started to um, develop algorithms to process pixels and extract useful information. And the way they did it was the way we've always developed algorithms by applying a lot of a specialized know-how and intellect and thinking hard about the problem and looking at the data, scrutinizing lots of, of examples and, and trying to reason through, okay, well, maybe a face can be recognized based on the fact that it has certain prominent features like eyes, nose, and mouth in certain um, organization rel positions relative to each other. 
And so people, you know, write algorithms in software to uh, process pixels to extract information. Um, the the difficulty with this is if you're talking about what we might call like natural images, images from the real world, as opposed to some really constrained, controlled environment, there's so much variation in the images. Like I might write my whole algorithm to detect a human face and then someone shows up with their head tilted or wearing eyeglasses or different skin tone or, or a patch over their eye or whatever. Now my algorithm's broken or they're backlit, right? Their face is backlit. So I really can't quite make out their features so well from the, the image. And so it, it, it was possible to solve application problems this way, but it was pretty painful, pretty expensive. Um, you know, product development groups, algorithm development groups would spend many, many engineer years crafting these algorithms and refining them and refining them um, to make them better. And so as a consequence, Computer vision got deployed, but only in a relative handful of applications, um, especially applications where things, the environment could be pretty readily controlled, things like the lighting and the camera position, applications like manufacturing inspection, for right, example. Right, the plant, the manufacturing floor, right? Yeah. Exactly. So if, you, you know, if you're looking at some assembly and you're trying to determine, like, um, are all of the bolts present? And, you know, bolts always look the same. You're always looking in the same position. You can control the lighting, the camera position. There's nothing blocking your view. There's nothing distracting behind the thing you're looking at. Those problems were, were pretty solvable, but more um, kind of natural problems like recently in COVID times, one thing that people often wanna do is um, compile statistics on as people pass by a certain place, what percentage of them are wearing masks? That's just a much, much harder problem, right? Because masks come in different sizes and shapes. People come in different sizes and shapes. They're not necessarily looking right at the camera. They're not necessarily well lit. Those kinds of problems really defied solution uh, with this traditional approach of, well, let's scrutinize the data and then let's apply a lot of engineering know-how and insight to handcraft algorithms to take those pixels and extract the necessary, um, the necessary um, insights. It's only really been with the emergence of deep learning in the last five or 10 years that we have a different approach to this problem, which is much more data-driven than code um, or, or algorithm design-driven. And the idea with deep learning is we have a, an algorithm that's, that's a kind of learning machine. And so rather than telling, rather than prescribing steps in an algorithm to solve a specific problem, we have this general learning structure. And what we do is we, we show it lots of examples. Here's a person with a mask. Here's a person without a mask. Here's 10,000 people with, with masks in different situations and orientations. And here's 10,000 people without masks. And these algorithms, the remarkable thing is that they're able to learn. Um, it's kind of the difference between showing and telling, right? If you think about teaching a child to tie their shoes, if you tried to just describe the process step-by-step, step, you're never gonna succeed, right? It's impossible. <laughs> So nobody does, right? We, we figured out that doesn't work. You're trying to teach a child how to tie their shoes or some similar kind of task. You demonstrate. And you maybe even take a step further and lead them through the steps. You hold their hands and show them. You put this under this, loop this around here. And amazing, like the child can learn. And 
it turns out that these algorithms, these deep learning algorithms are equally amazing in their ability to learn by example rather than by prescription, by you know, detailed recipe. And this is, it's hard to overstate the importance of this um, paradigm shift uh, in enabling us to solve all kinds of real world problems where we wanna extract information from images or video um, where it's not a very well-controlled, consistent environment like that manufacturing line where we're looking for a certain number of bolts in certain predetermined positions. And so now we can actually quite well solve problems like people walking by in the street, are they wearing masks or not? Or another really cool application that I came across recently, they call it Night Nurse. It's from a Dutch startup called Kepler Vision. And it's, um, it's for use in like elder care facilities so that if a, uh, an elderly patient, for example, falls out of bed at night, um, what this system does is it uses a camera mounted in the ceiling and it analyzes not just individual frames of images, but the sequence of frames to understand the person's behavior and to be able to distinguish between normal behavior, like somebody's gotten up to use the bathroom and abnormal or dangerous behavior, like person's fallen out of bed. And so rather than a nurse having to frequently check up on the patient at night and potentially disturb their sleep, the system can monitor continuously and can immediately alert the nurse if the patient um, is in danger. This is a sort of messy real world problem. I say messy because, you know, how would you describe in words or in numeric terms as, as code um, what the difference is between a person, let's say, getting up out of bed and moving to a nearby chair and sitting down in that chair versus falling out of bed? You know it when you see it. But describing it in words in a, in a precise way is quite hard. And so this is an, an example of where the emergence of deep learning is enabling us to solve all kinds of real world problems effectively that could not be solved with the traditional handcrafted um, algorithm techniques. So this is one huge change that's happened, let's say just in the last five years or so, this transition from the handcrafted algorithms that, that were the, the approach in computer vision from its inception, um, in say the 1960s up until um, just a few years ago, and now this data-driven machine learning-based approach. That's one of the big things that's changed and has created a lot of opportunity and excitement. All right, let me stop you right there because I do have a question. Um, as much as, you know, it's, it's uh, so what, I think what you just described is that uh, the vision which used to be, I think we used to call it, machine vision, maybe, you know, when it was in the manufacturing, and that moved into, you know, the, 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 that was a constrained environment. Now it is now uh, freely moved into the natural environment. That's the transition you just described. And yet, I think the problem that I see is that just because DNN came into existence, that doesn't mean that you're actually creating great products because DNN doesn't know what needs to be watched or what needs to be analyzed? How do you how do you fill in the gap between the people who have to create programs and people who have to write code using DNN? You you just you you, you can't just go out to a store and say, okay, I want a DNN for this, I want a DNN for that, right? How do you do that, Jeff? Yeah, it's it's a great question, and I think when when technology is is new. Or, or has changed quickly, 
there's there's uh, always a challenge in figuring out where to apply it, right? Where does it really make sense? Where can it really add value? Um, in the case of deep neural networks, there's a lot of hype and excitement about it and people are eager to use it, but it's it's easy to pick the wrong problem, to pick a problem that's actually kind of, it's unnecessary where mm-hmm. DNNs are unnecessary and classical techniques are working fine. So you're just kind of wasting time and money or um, pick problems that are that are out of reach with the current state of the technology and not practical to solve. Um, and so I think really what it comes down to is people need to learn. They need to learn about deep neural networks, what they're capable of, what they're not capable of, what the kind of trajectory of their advance, their evolution is, and how to recognize an appropriate problem um, that that's at the kind of the right level of difficulty, right? Neither too easy, could just as well be solved and probably has been solved with classical techniques, nor too hard, still a research problem and the sort of commercially deployable technology isn't really up to solving that problem. And it's not something that can be just, I think, summarized in a few, you know, in a, in a document. I think it does require digging in and learning about the current state of the technology. Um, and then looking at your application domain, uh, you know, elder care or home security or manufacturing or um, uh, vehicle traffic optimization, whatever your application domain is. And once you have an understanding of the state of the technology, then mapping it to the, the best problems, right, where it can add the most value and is also practical um, to implement. And so this is where I think, you know, Awareness education is so important. People in in every field of the electronics industry do need to learn about this technology, not necessarily to master every detail of it, but to understand what it can do, what it's capable of. And also, you know, a great way to do that is to look at what other people are doing, right? What other companies and product developers, where they've been successful using the technology and then map that to, oh, okay, if they're able to solve that problem in healthcare, I think I can solve this problem in retail or education. Yeah, no, that's a that that's a great example actually because, um, it, it, as you said from the very beginning, there are so many application areas where the uh, AI uh, is expected to be used, but at the same time, you know, none of us, well, none of the engineers who's building AI processors or who building, you know certain systems, they're not subject matter experts on certain domain, right? So how it's, it's either you put the tools into the hands of domain experts, or you have to figure out a way that the, the engineers who are building the systems and the algorithm, they really need to be closer to the knowledge level that the domain experts have, you know, are you seeing the bridging going on? Yeah, it's, it's, it's happening. And I, I, I see a parallel with in earlier decades, I was heavily involved in digital signal processing and things like um, of audio and speech processing. So if we rewind like 20 years, 30 years, to think about digital signal processing and digital audio. At that time, that technology was in a similar state. It worked, but it was pretty new and it wasn't really deployable off the shelf. And so if a company, let's say a company made vending machines and they wanted to add voice commands to vending machines, they'd have to go and hire some DSP and and speech experts. 
most likely, and most likely they'd have to really do um, some research and original development, original technology kind of invention to, to kind of create a unique solution for their application. Then if you think about 15 or 20 years later, or certainly today, if you were trying to solve the same problem, you wouldn't even consider trying to create a speech recognition solution from scratch. You just go license something off the shelf Right. That already runs on an embedded processor, and all you would need to do most likely was maybe specify the vocabulary you need for your application and figure out kind of the application logic of you know how how your machine is going to respond to voice commands. So, with um, deep neural networks for kind of visual applications, I would say for probably for all applications, we're still kind of in that early stage where companies do need some in-house expertise um, to uh, kind of figure out how to use this technology and to use it effectively for their particular application and use case. But at the same time, the tools and off-the-shelf solutions are advancing really quickly. And so we're rapidly getting to a place where for common functions and use cases, you can just buy the solution that's deep learning-based off the shelf. A great example of this would be something like hand gesture control. And I want to, uh, let's say an automotive application, I want the driver to be able to control things like the climate control and the radio by making hand gestures. Well, plenty of companies already have robust solutions to kind of, you know, vision-based gesture control that are deep learning based that you can uh, license and incorporate into a system without having to get involved in all the underlying details of how the deep neural networks work and how they're trained and so on. So we're in the early stages. These days, most, in most cases, companies that are gonna incorporate deep neural networks into their applications, they're gonna to need to, to bring in some expertise in-house or through a partner. However, things are advancing fast. And over, over time, more and more of the common functions that you might wanna do with a deep neural network operating on image data, or for that matter, audio data, or or uh, other kind of sensor data will be available off the shelf. Right. No, that's a that's good. Um, I have a, one more question, which you recently wrote um, a column for us on what we call perspective on AE times, and you wrote about um, the five trends to watch in embedded vision and uh, edge AI, right? That was a great, great column. One of the things actually you mentioned in the story is that, um, you know, things are changing uh, from code-driven world to the data-driven world, right? Which I think is so true. But also you ask questions that data is a pain. I totally agree with you. Data is a pain. How do you get it? You know, where do you get it? How much of it do you need? And how do you get more of it, right? I mean, those are the great questions you posed here. So tell me a little bit about what we need to be prepared to work in an environment where data, the world is a development, uh, you know, engineering development world is really now driven by data. Yeah, it's true. And um, it's a huge change. You know, code, algorithms and code have been kind of the center of, of the universe. If you think about, you know, systems and applications that were taking in sensor data um, in order to do something like, like uh, think about something like the, the Segway, you know, scooter and its feedback control, you know, mechanism. It's taking in sensing 
sensor data from accelerometers, probably from sensors on the, on the wheels, and from uh, uh, perhaps other kinds of sensors. And it's it's got a feedback loop running that th that's, a, that's then controlling the motors, so that the, the thing behaves in in uh, in a predictable um, way, and people can use it safely and productively. So it's all about those. What are those algorithms? Uh, and what is the code? In the machine learning era, it becomes much more about the data. What is the data that we use to train the algorithm um, uh, that gets us the desired behavior rather than writing code and, and writing our own algorithms and refining them? And it's that's a huge, a huge change. And it requires a different mindset and a different kind of set of, of techniques and tools to answer questions like, yeah, how much data are we going to need? And what kind of data and how is it going to need to be annotated so that we can use it um, for training? How are we gonna measure accuracy? This is an area where um, education is really important because the techniques are so different. The techniques of deep neural networks are so different from classical hand-engineered hand algorithms. It's something that people, where people do need to invest individuals and organizations in education. And also they need to learn um, through experience. Uh, are there applications where, uh, where vision plus LIDAR or vision plus some other sensor technology um, uh, becomes uh, more useful than just vision alone? And how is that developing? Yeah, absolutely. Vision is by no means the only game in town. I think image data is uniquely uh, kind of rich and flexible in what we what we can get out of it compared to other kinds of sensors. And it, I think there's a good analogy here with human vision. You think about all the things that your vision enables you to do from, you know, very fine kind of motor tasks like threading a needle to navigating in three-dimensional space, whether you're on foot or in some kind of vehicle, to reading someone else's body language or even potentially reading their lips. Mm -hmm. It's quite amazing the amount of information we get from visually. And similarly, machines can get quite an amazing range of insights and useful information from visual data. But just like humans are not limited to visual data, in many cases, it's going to make sense for machines to use other kinds of data. I, I, my, my kind of aha moment about this was I put an early mobile eye uh, driver assistance system that's purely computer vision based in our family minivan in like 2011 or so. And because uh, I wanted to get some firsthand experience with how you know, real world computer vision worked at that time. And that system was quite impressive for its day. But I'll tell you where it wasn't impressive. Um, after we had it for a few months, we live near San Francisco. We took a family trip up to Lake Tahoe in the wintertime. And if you've done that, you know that a common phenomenon is when you get up into the mountains, the weather can change very quickly and the visibility can go from unlimited to almost zero instantly. Mm. Well, this happened. We we're driving on Highway 80 behind a, an 18-wheeler and suddenly the weather changed and the 18-wheeler disappeared. Could not see it. Mm. It might have been 100 feet ahead. I couldn't see it and neither could my computer vision-based driver assistance system because it was relying on the same you know, visual wavelengths that I could see. Right. Um, so that was a, a real kind of lesson in, well, this is an amazing system, but it's got some real limitations. And in that case, radar would have yep. been 
the perfect supplement or complement to vision, because even though radar can't discern the nature of objects nearly as well as uh, vision, you know, image sensors can, it has no problem with things like, you know, fog and rain and and deep darkness and, and so on. So I think absolutely, you know, application to application, there are going to be many applications where the image sensor should be complemented, will be complemented by other kinds of sensors. And actually, deep learning can really help us with um, using that data in a combined way to get the most out of it. And, you know, there'll be applications where you don't need an image sensor. Radar by itself or LIDAR by itself turns out to be superior. And by the way, there's not just one kind of image sensor either, right? We have things like infrared, we have hyperspectral, we have stereo imagers. So there's a lot of diversity there as well, even in the staying in the visual domain. Lots of options there, big, big design space. Okay, tell us about what's happening with the Embedded Vision Summit this year and when it's going to be held. Yeah, so the Embedded Vision Summit is an annual conference and expo. It uh, takes place each year in May. It's going to be online this year, May 25th through 28th. And this event is completely focused on exactly the kinds of things we've been talking about here, helping system and application developers understand what problems can they solve today in the real world with commercially available technology in this realm of visual intelligence or computer vision or embedded vision or whatever we want to call it. Um, What's feasible, not only in absolute terms, but also in a commercially practical deployable way. You know, most of the, these applications have significant, often quite challenging constraints on power consumption cost and or size. So it's not just being able to solve the problem kind of in a lab with data center level hardware or desktop PC level hardware. It's able to solve it in the real world with real world conditions in terms of kind of messy, messy data, but also with the kinds of hardware that can fit into these constrained embedded environments. So we look at example applications that people can learn from. We look at the building block technologies, the processors and sensors and deep neural network topologies, other kinds of algorithms and the software tools. And we look at the techniques. For example, we talked about data, how to figure out what kind of data you need, how to get it, how to get it annotated, how to do the training, how to assess the accuracy of your deep neural network, how to integrate that into a complete application solution and assess the effectiveness of the complete solution, not just the deep neural network. So this is these are the kinds of things that the Embedded Vision Summit focuses on, really empowering uh, embedded system uh, and application developers to figure out what are the right problems in my application domain to tackle with this technology, what are the commercially available off-the-shelf building blocks uh, that I should use, and then what are the techniques that I should use that are you know, proven to work in this kind of um, environment so that I can be successful um, incorporating this technology, which is quite new to, to most uh, product developers and, 
and do so in a way that's that's going to be effective. So lots of presentations, over 90 presentations from really expert practitioners, not not academic researchy kinds of things, but really real world, what works in the real world, and demos, um, nearly 100 demos of the commercially available building block technologies. And probably most importantly, it's not just a kind of one way, it's not just a lecture, there's a lot of interaction in the summit, even in its online format, lots of opportunities for the attendees to ask questions of the presenters, um, of the folks giving the demos, and to uh, set up exchange messages, set up quick one-on-one -on -one meetings to get their questions answered. Great. It sounds like a really hands-on uh, summit, isn't it? Yeah, it's got to be because you know, you, there, there, there are things you can learn from reading, you know, mm -hmm. and there are things you got to learn by doing or by talking with people who've done them. And that's the realm we're in with this technology. It's not, it's not just you follow a recipe and it's going to work. You have to kind of get these real world, you know, lessons, either yourself or better yet, you know, from other people's already learned them. So you can, I, I like to refer to it as learning from other people's mistakes. So you're, you're, you're giving people an opportunity to, you're, you're going to show them how to tie their shoes. Yeah. Instead of tell them. Yes. Good tie into the uh, earlier discussion about the difference between deep learning and handcrafted algorithms. Exactly. You have, you have to see some of this stuff in action, experience it, to, to really appreciate it. You can't, you can't just read a book and, and go off, and at least most people go off and build a practical real world solution. Um, and so this is, this is the mission of the summit is to kind of bridge that gap. You've, you, maybe you've learned what you can from reading books and, and articles and so on. Now come and get the, uh, cover that gap between kind of book learning and real world kind of hands-on um, lessons learned. Right. All right, Jeff. Thank you thank so you. much. Well, I appreciate right. the opportunity. Thank you both very much. Yeah, well, thank uh, it's you. It's a pleasure talking to you, Jeff. It really is. Yeah. That was Jeff Beer, president of BDTI, founder of the Edge AI and Vision Alliance, and organizer of the Embedded Vision Summit. This year, the Embedded Vision Summit will be from May 25th through May 28th. And given the lingering effects of the pandemic, it will be virtual. If you're interested in viewing any of the sessions, visit embeddedvisionsummit.com. There's also a link to the summit on our podcast webpage. Different market research companies define the machine vision market in different ways, and their estimates of the market size vary from each other. But their estimates tend to be within uh, about 10% of each other. By one estimate, the machine vision market was worth $11.4 at the end of 2020. The company that made that estimate projects the market could be worth over $19 billion by 2027. In our discussions about combining machine learning and embedded vision, one of the things we've been getting at is to create systems that can not just detect objects, but identify them. In another story by Sally Ward-Foxen that we've run on EE Times recently, we meet a startup using a specific and less publicized version of AI technology called attention-based neural networking. They're using it in an effort to achieve a system that can rapidly identify objects and images, in contrast to brute force processing of billions of pixels to render the most likely conclusion. There's a link to that story on the podcast webpage as well. So we're just about to sign off again, but hold off for just a second. 
I wanted to let our regular listeners know that this is probably the last time we'll hear the voice of Junko Yoshida on this podcast. After what I am pretty sure is the longest tenure of any single editor ever at EE Times, Junko is retiring. Longtime listeners of the podcast may recall that this is my second stint with EE Times. The first began in the late 1980s, and I was here to greet Junko when she was first hired. She was a ball of energy then, and she's still one of the most vivacious and vivid people I know. There have been many great journalists who work for EE Times over the years, and Junko ranks among the very best, doggedly chasing stories, writing articles with verve, and eventually sharing her knowledge, experience, and good cheer with successive generations of EE Times editors. I'm personally not saying goodbye. I fully intend to keep having fun with my very good friend for many years to come. But I do want to say that I'm going to miss my partner in crime at EE Times. It's probably just as well that getting the rights to music is just about impossible, because right about now I'd otherwise segue into something like The Way We Were, just to cheese her off. This way, I'm saving myself a smack in the head. And now that is it for the weekly briefing for the week ending May 14th. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. But if you get to us via our website at eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. This podcast is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.